Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Baker's Comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better. Stronger. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. To our show. To our show, yes. Cruising down the highway. Knowing where we're going now, we've got a destination in mind. Have we? It's not just in perpetuity. Unless you foul up, obviously. <laughs> Welcome back. It's nice that you could join us if, if you have. If you haven't, you're not listening. So that's kind of pointless, isn't yeah. it? It's the last week of those 70s shows. Yeah, we know. Oh, have you not enjoyed them? I have enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it's it It's nice immensely. to move on to other things. It is. done yes. five. That's, is this weeks. six, isn't it? Six. Or is this seven? Six. Six. So yeah. we did, did we Because we originally had it as four. And then we originally had it as five. And then it grew to five because um, Rock World... Ended up only being one, didn't it, instead of two. And then someone had a wacky idea of covering, of covering Gwen. Night Gwen Stacy died. So I have no idea who that person six. is. It, that was a, a unanimous decision. Yeah, yeah. That was put to the vote, and the motion was passed. It must really, really be awkward for a vote between the two of us. <laughs> yeah, there is no deciding vote, yeah, is there? Yeah. There's only two of us. Anyway, yeah, so it's the final at 70 show. But fear not... I know that you weren't, lovely listener, but we have plenty planned for the future. Look at that, look at that book, though. Because the audience can see it. A couple of gaps. Well, I don't know, you want to tease, but at the same time... You, you want to tease them with something they can't see. Yes, you want to tease them with something you can't see. What do you think of those suggestions? Uh, yeah. Are you down with those suggestions? Uh, yeah. Okay, fair enough. A mixture of old, mixture of new, maybe some nineties. As long as you have my suggestions. Well, there are gaps though. There are for your suggestions. Some stuff we've promised that we do forever. Finally, going to get around to doing. What things we've done, Wolverine? Hulk Grey. We haven't promised that forever. We've promised it for a while. Finish okay. off the, the Colors trilogy. Just as we do that, I bet your father, Captain America, White comes out. <laughs> yeah. We should have picked up that Zero issue. We've promised Hush. For such a long time, that that became the new Wolverine, Wolverine. and so that's finally going to get done, I think. Yeah. In fact, I'm pretty sure that's going to get done. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I can't remember anything. Clone Saga, 70s Clone Saga. That's been in the book for ages. Has it? Finally going to get to it, I think. Anyway, should we? Nothing happened this week. Superman and Batman apparently announced they've got a film title. Internet went, ah! Batman v Superman. Is that what it is? You know what I found out? No. That it's versus, unless it's in the court of law. So unless Batman is suing Superman. So it's just Batman v Superman, so it's it's going to be a courtroom drama. (laughs) How fascinating is that going to be to watch? I passed the motion. I second that emotion. Overruled! Objection! Gotta watch a lot of uh, courtroom TV. Do you? But you know all the stuff that they're gonna the, say. The, the Contempt of court! Batman goes against Judge Judah. <laughs> I would actually watch that. Batman versus Judge Judah. I think that would be awesome. 
Dick. Judge Judy passing sentence and all the people, Batman's knocked the teeth out of. I thought that would be quite a cool crossover. It would be. Doesn't it have a subtitle? It's not Dawn of the Jedi. Dawn of Justice. Dawn of Justice. So where am I getting Dawn of the Jedi from? I have no idea. It's such a stupid title, though. Is it? I I, I don't give a toss. I'll be honest with you, it's a title. But I liked Phantom Menace as a title. And everyone else was, this is terrible! And I'm, why is it terrible? It's perfectly okay (laughs) as a title. And Attack of the Clones is terrible! Actually, It's not, because the clones are attacking. Well, do they actually attack in that film? Yes. Do they really? The Clone Wars starts in that film. The Clone Wars start at the end of the movie and we see the clones all descending from the troopers but we don't actually see them attack we see some fighting <laughs> but no attacking there is a lot of attacking there may be some defending there's a lot of attacking you think they, so? they do the raid on Geonosis Genosis. Geonosis do we see that yes do we it takes up the good 20 minutes at the end no that's the Jedi not the clones no the no the attack with the Jedi do they yes I have not watched Attack of the Clones for a long time I watch Revenge of the Sith every time it's on Revenge of the Sith looks great on Blu-ray Revenge of the Sith is great that opening sequence do you know what you know what I'm thinking of doing my little Palace of Glittering Delights project that you're nothing to do with because you'll be gone soon oh you're right okay. I'm thinking of doing it in defence of Revenge of the Sith I thought that would make a good episode. There would be nothing wrong with Revenge of the Sith if Anakin was not in it. There'd be nothing wrong with Revenge of the Sith if Hayden Christiansen, whatever is that his name? Yeah, was I, in I it. just don't like Anakin. Well, are you an angel? That's are you supposed to like? Now Anakin? this is pod racing. Yeah, that was terrible. There's no denying that. I'm not. I'm not going to sit here and defend the Phantom Menace. Right. Other than the lightsaber back. And then in the second one, he turns into a moody teenager. Yeah, I know, but... Even as a moody teenager... That's, that's got a gonna... great Obi-Wan line in it. And then the third one... We're here to rescue you! Good job. Good job. Anyway. I saw Godzilla. Did you, oh, yeah, you did see Godzilla. Did you like Godzilla? Godzilla was great. Was it? It was. I have not seen the it. The Atomic Breath. I was worried they weren't going to get it well, right. Well, I didn't want to mention it to you. They got it perfect. They really? They did. I was I was all over the show. I was that excited. So yeah, yeah. Did you have a, a I, joygasm? I squealed and got up from my chair. A geek gasm. God, I'll get it. Good. I'm glad you, that you liked it. Let like me and your mega watching it next week when I'm on holiday. Seems like a plan. Okay. What I found out was one of the, was one of the actors. <laughs> you just don't want me to start I, the email no, section, yeah. do you? Go on. The, one of the actors from the original Godzilla movie showed up in about I think it's ten Godzilla movies now. It's a different character was in the new one. It's kind of like a cameo. But it was cut from the theatrical release. That's a bummer. It's going to be on the DVD, though. Is it just going to be a deleted scene, or is it going no, to be it's put back into the, the film? The DVD release is an extended version. Of course it is. Unrated extended cut. Yes. Brackets. Money grab. Close brackets. I'd buy it. Well, I'm pretty sure you'll be on buying it anywhere. Glorious Blu-ray. On glorious Blu-ray, yes. Anyway, should we, should we progress we to, should, to we the should. email yes. section of the show? Our first email tonight is Christopher Franklin. Hello, Chris. It's a scone. It's a scone. It's a scone. <laughs> Where did that come it's from? A scone. It's, it's a scone. It's a scone. It's a trap. <laughs> it's a stone groove, my man. But it is. Word, word up. Word up. Yo. Yo. Word on the street. What's the word in the ghetto, Holmes? Chris Franklin's email begins. What's happening, Leyland's? you got to talk like Antonio Fargas Do you, while you, you have read to. this email, yeah. Groovy start to your funkadelic trip through the 70s, man! Like that. Okay. That's that's certainly how we used to address Starsky. What was it? I'm, I'm 
99.9% convinced of that. How can you not love the giant size X-Men cover? Quite easily, I would imagine. (laughs) How else could you convey out with the old, in with the new, any better than that? Sure, comic characters bursting through paper is nothing new. See Robin's debut in Tech Issue 38 for the first time. But Gil Kane's and Dave Cockrum's cover is a classic for a reason. The comic may not live up to the hype, but the cover works, at least for me. Did we not like the cover? I don't know. Seven weeks ago now, I don't remember. I know. Isn't Robin also <laughs> jumping out of a giant tambourine? He's, he's jump- No, he's jumping out of one of those things they used to have in the circus that they leapt through. Weren't they normally on fire, though? That would be cool, mm. Especially if he missed and his cape caught on fire. Child and Dead yeah. That's all I'm going to say about the Batman and Robin thing. <laughs> okay. Because we live in the now, and we cannot now look at things in the past without modern sensibilities. So in that case, why wasn't health and safety all over Batman in the first place? <laughs> yeah, for having Robin with him at all. Or for doing anything. <laughs> you see some officious looking guy going, yeah. you do realise, Mr. Batman, that the Health and Safety at Work Act 1974 also covers sidekicks, paragraph 6, subclause 4. And Robin's just sat there going... Paragraph... And Batman's like, who told this guy? <laughs> and Robin's like, oh, it wasn't me. Paragraph 7 also talks about using bat ropes. <laughs> As a way of climbing up buildings when there are perfectly serviceable elevators. You can break a window. <laughs> Especially with those boots he's wearing now. <laughs> don't, go, don't go climbing in pixie boots. And paragraph 12 about sitting on gargoyles, they could fall on some people below. <laughs> Don't even get started on the bat gyro. Do you think superheroes have a health and safety at work act? No one listens to them, though. No, everyone Matt Murdock's running around. Guys, guys, have you read the handbook? Go away, Daredevil. And then he turns around and says, I'm not Daredevil. Chris's email continues. Nice to hear Michael enjoyed the New Gods issue. I'm woefully behind on my fourth world reading and I need to pick up those trade paperbacks. I think Kirby's a... Kirby? (laughs) Herpes. <laughs> I think Kirby's art evolved to the point where it looked out of place on mundane superhero fur and suited cosmic epics much more as seen here. Steppenwolf got better and became the first mailing figure in the superpowers line. <laughs> Somebody else for whom death is not the obstacle it once was. <laughs> Dick Giordano was a solid illustrator way before Neil Adams ever picked up a pencil but he did absorb some of Adams' style during their partnership although I don't want to know about the sheer magnificence of Neil Adams' anatomy (laughs) (laughs) hey I'm sure if given the opportunity Chris Neil Adams would talk about it at length I remember the Sons of the Tiger crossing over into Spectacular Spider-Man at some point and giving us the White Tiger or something like that. Don't go in the basement. You're not seeing the basement, bitch! <laughs> As the great Jesse Pinkman once said. Yes, the great Jesse Pinkman. That's still my favourite line from the show. Oh, dear. Uh, the, yeah, the White Tiger got... Hector Elia got shot. He got gunned down Isn't rather the White Tiger bloodily. Woman? He is now. Well, she is. Yes, that's what I, that's what I meant. <laughs> He's a she now. We're, yes, because uh, this all-inclusive society in which Garrison. we live. <laughs> yeah, it's Mrs. Garrison. Yeah. <laughs> Come back, you with my penis. <laughs> anyway, the white tiger was uh, Hector Alaya, and he did get shot in an issue of Spectacular Spider-Man, and he gave up. 
being the white tiger. Our next email is from David Gutierrez. Bar weep, etc. The recurring greeting is from Transformers the movie, animated version. It's a greeting from the Wreck Gars, a race of Transformers that live in a junkyard raised on TV. Also, I remember I, that. They yeah. speak in TV talk. Oh, right. And they're just talking like advert slang to each other. Alright, okay. Yeah. I don't know. So it's a headache? That's... So the, well, it's, it, essentially they just play clips from adverts to each other and they understand that that's how they communicate yeah, that's right. how, yeah. like Darmok at Tanagra his arms wide like that yeah <laughs> also I believe the Krakow Island stuff was expanded upon in X-Men Deadly Genesis it wasn't much of a read and I think it was used simply to set up Vulcan the third and youngest Summers brothers snooze how's things Al uh, a tickety boo how are you, young Michael? Young I'm, Mull? I'm, I'm Peachy. Are you Peachy? I am. Peachy Keen. Yeah. How are you, David? <laughs> how, how many Summers Brothers were there? They Apparently seem, there are three now. They seem to pop out a new one every, they, every other They year. do seem to pop out a new one whenever they get bored, oh, yeah. don't they? Whenever, whenever the TV goes off. Yeah, that's, that's true, yeah. Our next email is Gabriel Jimenez. It's been a while since Gabriel it has. It, hasn't it? Hey, you too. It's been a while since I last wrote. <laughs> that doesn't mean I have stopped listening to your show. Very entertaining, enjoyable and fun as always. I have to admit I'm still a bit behind on the episodes, though I am catching up and I'm only four episodes behind as of today. So I'll take that as progress of a sort. I think the last time I wrote I was much more behind. I hate lagging behind so much on my listening and especially on my writing because there are plenty of things I hear that I would like to comment on but by the time I actually sit down to write it's been a long time since it heard and there is too much to get to in a single sitting plus you've mentioned how hard it is for you both to remember certain things in that case you go back and listen to us again yes because we're that good difficult things I have trouble remembering name age where I live the age of my children <laughs> driving from home where do I live <laughs> that kind of thing regardless some quick note on previous episodes Loved the Silver Age comparisons. Well, thank you very much, Gabriel. I liked the approach you took comparing the issues you picked for a particular episode, but also how they compared to what we would consider modern comics. Whenever I think of Silver Age, I can't help but think of the inherent silliness and goofiness. Good to hear how some of those notions shouldn't be automatic, and how the reading experience may be different depending on how one approaches the reading of them. I especially liked the Thor comic review. It sounded like a really interesting and a fun read. Not at all what I would have expected from such an early Thor book. No, it was excellent, that Thor Which issue. Was the Thor one? Call it Ragnarok! Ah, right. Very dramatic. Yes. Brian Blessed should have read that for us. He should have. Shouldn't he? If we ever meet Brian Blessed, I will give him that synopsis. Hey, Brian, you read this for us. <laughs> Record it. Yeah, we'll, we'll release it as a, a special or something. Gah! alive! <laughs> that would be awesome. Gabriel continues, Marvel Zombies! I ate up the mini you reviewed when it first came out. I thought it was so much fun and different and offbeat. After I heard your review, though, I recognised the elements that I enjoyed during my initial read, but they didn't seem to be that particularly funny or interesting. Hmm, I'm curious to give it another read, but not sure now. I do remember that as Mini after Zombie Mini kept appearing, my interest dwindled to nothing, so I guess that even then I wasn't as enamoured with the concept. Talk about milking a cow. Yeah, that was the same for me. I enjoyed it until you reviewed it. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> well, I enter, please. <laughs> I enjoyed that comic <laughs> till you read it and ruined it for me. <laughs> Can't have been that good 
if I could ruin it for you. There is that. It's the same with everything we do. Maximum Carnage, loved it as a child, reviewed in the show, hated it. (laughs) Civil War, enjoyed as a child, read it again. Yeah, but Civil War was cack. There isn't, yeah. I can't defend it anymore. (laughs) EC Horror Comics, continues Gabriel. That was a treat. Oh, thank you very much. We enjoyed doing that one. You always hear about those stories, how popular they were, how much they were affected by Wortham's insane crusade, (laughs) how influential they were to future creators. However, aside from some mini-reviews and articles or comments, I don't think I've ever heard such detailed reviews before you guys. The baseball game story in particular grabbed my attention so much that I just had to look it up online and read it. That is some messed up shizzle. I think you guys chose your stories well, and even if Michael didn't like all of them, I very much enjoyed your reviews of them. Again, doing the easy horror comic stuff was fun, wasn't it? It was. It was, uh... One of the more interesting things about doing the show has been doing stuff that we know nothing about. I do like reading a variety of things within the same group, though, because I like seeing what I dislike and Mm. why I dislike things opposed to things I do like that follow the same concept. Yeah, well, and I'm always like, oh, you love a thousand clowns, and you're like, yeah, it's alright. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, you won't like this one, and you were, oh, that was good. <laughs> yeah. So, it's your own fault for being mercurial. There is, yes. That's the bottom line. Gabriel continues, Joker, well, what can I say about these gems? I think you've said, fair enough, though. they were gems. <laughs> yes. Ow. <laughs> Did that come out your nose? That that hurt. (laughs) Fantastic work on these episodes. First off, the backstory for these is hilarious. And I loved how you just rolled with the whole situation. Typical of how you guys both plan and improvise your way through making the show. We barely plan anything. We barely plan. Well, apart from the book. Of course. Obviously. The legend. But even even then. Derry book. Just just in the book. Do you remember? Do you remember back in the days of our youth, of the early shows, where I used to write in the book? in pen yes and I quickly realised no 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 pencil is the way to go because <laughs> even though look how much rubbing out there is <laughs> uh, anyway, no but thank you Gabriel we love doing the joke ones that was a lot of fun I would love to go in depth on all the episodes continues Gabriel but figure it's been so long and I want to get to more stuff so I'll just go over some general aspects again very good job on picking the issues out a good blend of Joker stories choosing classic and characteristic stories as well as laying out much knowledge and analysis it was very interesting to see how the character was introduced and how he's been handled through the decades was very much surprised in learning how for a while he was just an average not enormous villain in Batman's roster totally agree on how important an archetype the treatment of Joker was on the animated series and it's not at all surprising that my favourite issue that you reviewed was Detective Issue 826 written by Deanie. What a great boot that was. Funny, creepy, scurry and showed Tim holding his own against the Joker. And can we just pause for a second though to mourn the fact that isn't that just really awesome to be able to say that Detective Comics was up to 826? And now that's just... That's just a 900, wasn't it? I don't think it reached 900. Action Comics did. No, it did, because it was Time of the Batman. No, that was Batman 700. Was it? Yeah. Ah. Not Detective. Right. So, I think, I don't, whatever you think of the new 52, I think losing the numbering for Detective and, and Action was, was Oh, very they sad. recently did Detective 900 with the Man Bats, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah. But they didn't call it that. They, they just called the story. Yeah. Then, yeah. It was Detective Comics 27, wasn't it? Something like no, that. No, it was yeah. before that, because 27 was the most recent one with the retelling of was that the yeah alright I'll take your word for that Gabriel finishes 
I read Death of the Family and did enjoy it, but the way you guys handled the review, the attention you put on certain details, the analysis and comparison to other stories, and the context of the stories within the current status quo, I've not read any New 52, certainly raised the enjoyment factor of the story. I'm curious in giving it a reread. Well, it's getting a bit long now, so I'll cut here for now. Hope to write back soon and eventually catch up on the episodes. As usual, congrats on putting out a great show. Laters, dudes. P.S. Have to say, it does bum me out hearing you guys talk about the end of the show and all of that. I understand that it would be complicated to keep the show going once Michael's off to college and doing a long-distance show and all, but still, I wish in my selfish heart that things wouldn't be so. At any rate, as long as you keep putting them out, I'll keep listening. Well, thank you, Gabriel. We will keep putting them out... Oh, as long as we possibly can. Yes. That's the goal, anyway. Until the book ends. Until the book ends. But, you know, all things end, and that's what gives life its purpose, knowing that it ends. It's a bit of a... It's a bummer way to live, really. No, it's not. Knowing that life ends... I'm going to wake up tomorrow thinking it's my last day. Well, you don't want to wake up every morning thinking today's going to be your last and be wrong every day, do you? But at the same time... You don't necessarily want to be right about it, though, either. You know, the, the one day that you're right, I would annoy you, yeah. I would imagine. Uh, Gabriel followed that up with, uh, Here I am, staying late at the office, as has been the norm of late, and I head over to Hey Kids Comics for something worth listening to after finishing the third instalment of those 70 shows. And what do I find? There's no new episodes! No! New episodes! I'm caught up! I'm current! It's taken me forever to be current. I have reached my goal. It's not that fun, actually. I want to hear an episode now. (sighs) Gonna have to wait now. Quintessential bittersweet victory. Oh, well. Just wanted to let you guys know. We'll write soon, though. Take care. Well, thank you, Gabriel. It's always nice to hear from Gabriel. Gabriel was the listener that coined what I think is the slogan for the show <laughs> sufficiently silly. Yes. That is still... Is it still stuck? It's still the, my favourite thing anyone has it's, ever it's said about the show. It's a shame we never did got those t-shirts printed. No, that's a bit late now, isn't yeah. it? Posters and stuff. Sufficiently silly, Gabriel Jimenez. Yes. That would be underneath. Five stars. <laughs> if I may be so presumptuous. Oh, yes, of course. As to award us ourselves a star. Go on iTunes and rate your own show. No one else is going to give us five stars. <laughs> is, that not, well. is that not liking your own Facebook posts? If there's something more well, important than my ego, I want it caught and shot. Well, if they didn't want me liking my own statuses, they should have never given me the option. <laughs> Anyway, we'll we'll uh, we'll knock it on the head though. We've not got many emails left. No, we've caught up as well at the moment. There uh, there has been a drought on emails. We've got a few, but you know this would be a good time to send us. Maybe the seventies just haven't been people's bags. Maybe this is the way it works, though, isn't it? Sometimes the episode you're most proud of. Zero listeners. Yes. <laughs> and the episode that you're like, we don't know anything about Transformers. Why would people want us to cover Transformers? And that's the most popular one we did. So It's kind of upsetting when you pour your heart into, say, two episodes and you put so much <laughs> effort into the, the notes and the editing and just no one likes it. And everyone always disses that episode. Yeah. I, I suffered for that one as well, you know, I played that bloody game for two weeks. Yeah, I, I suffered um, 198 episodes of Your Choices. <laughs> Metal Gear Solid, what can I say? It's just not our core demographic, dude. It's, it's not. Anyway, we're going to take a break, we'll plug a show, it'll be great, I'm sure of it. I say that every week, and I'm never wrong. <laughs> quite frankly because I only plug great shows at least you've never plugged a show that no longer exists 
Did you change that? I did, yeah. Did you leave it in no, the episode? I went, I went back and changed it. <laughs> Yeah, well, what's funny about that? It wasn't a show that just didn't exist anymore. It was a show that imploded. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, good, yes. Moving swiftly on, we'll be back after the break with Horror Week. I don't have long, so I need you to listen up. I have to debrief you about our new show where we're discussing the exciting new event series, 24, Live Another Day. Every week, we're going to go over the latest episode, where we think the show is headed, as well as our listeners' thoughts. It's called 24, Live Another Podcast. You can download each episode to your PDA of choice through iTunes, Stitcher, or go to the website at thehollywoodoutsider.com slash 24. Okay, that's all I can tell you right now. They're listening. So why aren't you? One of the areas that flourished in the 70s largely due to the relaxing of the comics code was the horror title. Almost overnight, Marvel started publishing comics featuring once-off-the-table creations such as Vampires and Werewolves and featuring such titles as Dead of Night, Monsters Unleashed, Brother Voodoo, Werewolf by Night and Vampire Tales. DC already had House of Mystery and House of Secrets, but countered with forbidden tales of Dark Mansion, unexpected, weird mystery tales and the witching hour. It's like EC Comics had risen from the grave. Diverse and talented creators, raised on their memories of EC Comics of the 50s, tried their hand at working with the new freedoms afforded them, and the covers would be just as intriguing and suggestive as EC in the heyday. One of Marvel's new initiatives, as mentioned in an internal memo, was to try and capture trends and fill needs, and presumably conquer new markets and sell some more comics. They quickly launched a series of newsstand magazines with handsome painted covers and stark, moody, monochromatic artwork in an oversized format. And if these magazines happened to capitalise on a current fad, then that could only help sales. Savage Tales No. 1, published in May 1971, was the first of these, and it was followed, albeit a few years later, in 1973, by Monsters Unleashed, Tales of the Zombie, Vampire Tales, and The Haunt of Horror. One of the most successful horror comics of the 70s, however, was a standard Marvel Monthly, Tomb of Dracula. Spinning out of those self-saying Comics Code relaxed rules, Marvel had already experimented with Morbius the Living Vampire, who escaped the wrath of the Comics Code by being neither vampire nor man, but a little bit of both. First appearing in Amazing Spider-Man issue 101 in October of 1971, Morbius, derived from the Latin for illness, was a Nobel Prize-winning biochemist who had tried to cure himself of a rare blood disease, but the experiment backfired, which I totally didn't see coming, and he instead had all the afflictions of vampirism without actually being undead, which was a nifty way of getting around the comics code rule of no undead creatures ever. Roy Thomas had wanted to use Dracula himself in this story, but Stan Lee instead wanted a super-villain vampire, showing that Stan hadn't lost his touch in grafting a superhero-esque element onto even the most outlandish of concepts in the hope of boosting sales. Stan must have later had a change of heart, or then head editor Roy Thomas talked him into it, but using Dracula himself suddenly became an option when it was pointing out that the Bram Stoker novel was now in the public domain, so Marvel could use those characters without worrying about any pesky litigation. For the first six issues, the series wasn't particularly promising. 
Jean Colan's magnificently moody artwork and Tom Palmer's complimentary inks were there from mostly the start, but the series had a revolving door of writers that seemed to have different ideas on how to approach the character. Jerry Conway, Archie Goodwin and Gardner Fox all took a crack at the Prince of Lies. Even when Marv Wolfman came aboard as regular writer, he felt he didn't know what to do with the series. Wolfman managed to turn it around with issue 12, when he realised the series wasn't about Dracula, rather the people he came into contact with and how he affected them. From that point, Wolfman, Colden and Palmer were off and running, and Tomb of Dracula would become the single most successful comic series ever to be devoted to a villain. Tomb of Dracula is also a rarity in US comics, particularly of this time period, in that it actually comes to a conclusion. After terrorising newsstands for the majority of a decade, Marvel called time on the book with issue 70, and Wolfman crafted a story that wrapped up all the loose ends and brought the strip to a satisfying close. Satisfying for the readers, but not necessarily for Wolfman, who clashed with editor-in-chief Jim Shooter over the length of the story. Shooter allegedly excised the page count, meaning Wolfman was forced to cut 14 pages out of the last few issues. These pages finally saw print in the second Tomb of Dracula omnibus. Marvel was, of course, simply tapping into the renaissance that Dracula was experiencing in the 70s, presumably as a result of the novel falling into the public domain. Gene Colon used actor Jack Palance as the basis for his interpretation of the character, and Palance would be granted the opportunity to play the Count in a successful television movie in 1973. Frank Langella also had a successful stab at Dracul in 1979, and Kolchak and the Night Stalker went up against vampires in both of his original TV movies in 1972 and 1973. Even Hammer Studios dug the Count up and plopped him down in the then-present-day in the magnificently dated but gloriously entertaining Dracula AD 1972. The strip first saw print in the UK as part of a weekly comic entitled Dracula Lives, starting in October of 1974. A moderate success, Dracula Lives would run for two years and 87 weekly issues before merging with Planet of the Apes weekly and finally falling into backup strip status in Mighty World of Marvel. The comic we've picked for tonight's episode is Tomb of Dracula, issue 25, which was published with a cover date of October 1974. The cover is by Gil Kane and Tom Palmer, and has Dracula and his undead minions tracking a human couple to an alleyway and setting upon them. It's a good cover, but good as Palmer is, and as much as I like him, he's an artist that subsumes the pencil. This could have been drawn by anybody. There's very little of Gil Kane here. As Dracula approaches the couple, he says, These two tractors here as humans. Should I do a Dracula accent? Go on. These two tractors here as humans, but when they leave, they too will be vampires. Slay them! That good? <laughs> yeah. it, was, it wasn't very Christopher Lee, was it? No, no. He's better at it than I am. You're a bit German, actually. Is, is he not German? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Not it's Transylvania. Transylvania. Bah. It's not Transylvania. <laughs> He's just a sweet Transylvanian. <laughs> let's not do a Rocky Horror let's, thing. Let's, 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 not. let's not. The creative team on Night of the Blood Stalker are Marv Wolfman, writer, Gene Cullen and Tom Palmer, artist and colorist, and John Costanza lettered. Roy Thomas was still editor at this point. I didn't ask you what you thought of the cover. Uh, I quite liked it. 
It's alright. I quite like the, the character reversal. What I mean is, in a comic, it would be the vampires backing away and the humans going, ah, we found them. Oh, right, okay, but in this particular case. Yeah. I like that the sun, sorry, the sun, <laughs> he's a vampire. <laughs> I like that the moon is conveniently shone right down upon them. Very convenient. Plus, there's a vampire on the other roof, like mine, a with a light. Yeah. <laughs> the bat signal, literally. <laughs> Hannibal King, a USPI in the UK, is tasked by newlywed Adrian Walters to find out who murdered her husband of one day, Fred. The description Adrian gives King sounds intriguing to King, a tall man slicked back her with pale skin and wearing an old-fashioned cloak. Apparently he showed up on the winter's doorstep last night and killed Fred dead, baby, by biting him, stating that Fred had to die for witnessing his accounts. Interrupted by neighbours before he could kill Adrienne, he dived out of the window and flew away. Hannibal talked money and takes the case. Hannibal's investigations first take him to a local pub where Fred was known to knock back a beer or two. A few words with the barkeep lead to Hannibal suffering a blow to the head. As he makes contact with concrete, Hannibal spots the telltale sign of the vampire on the barkeep's neck. After waking up, further investigations lead Hannibal to Fred's accountancy office on the docks, but there are people already there, including a certain Prince of Lies. Hannibal wades in, gun-drawn, but Dracula throws him out of a second-story window. Dracula leaves, saying to the other men that the coffins he wants delivered are to be dispatched to a warehouse on Kensington Place, and promptly vanishes in a puff of smoke. Hannibal, surprisingly unharmed, drops back in on Dracula's accomplice and learns of the address. He's very persuasive, and also heads in that same direction. Arriving at the warehouse, Hannibal confronts Dracula. Drac's normal ability to cloud the minds of men seems to be malfunctioning and instead sets his followers on Hannibal. Hannibal kills the vampires, but before Dracula can finish the job himself, the police arrive, summoned by Hannibal before he entered the building, leaving Hannibal to explain to Adrienne that her husband was killed to keep Dracula's affairs a secret. Adrienne leaves after wondering how did Hannibal deal with vampires and such. Hannibal thinks that that's easy. When you're a vampire, yourself. Wow, twist ending. Mm. Did you see that coming? Um, no, I didn't actually. Did you not already know who Hannibal King was? No. Alright, oh, that probably worked in your favour then. It probably did, yeah. Is the Hannibal King one of the Blade movies? I, I don't know, I've never seen any of the Blade movies. I can't remember. Not even Del Toro can make me want to watch any of the Blade movies. <laughs> you know, Wesley Snipes is awful in it. <laughs> Night of the Blood Stalker, the title of the story, it doesn't seem to make much sense to me as a title. I stalk blood. Yeah, well, well, nobody's stalking blood in this story. In fact, nobody's really stalking anything, unless it's referring to Hannibal being a vampire, and would therefore stalk for blood, but he doesn't do that in the story either, so that's reaching a bit, isn't it? Yeah. And granted, the Night Stalker had already been taken by Kolchak, so they probably couldn't use that, and Night of the Stalker's a Batman story, so yeah. they couldn't use that. Maybe they walk by night. Or a coffin for King. Or Vampire P.I. Yeah, the Night of the Coffin Stalker. Because Wolfman's going for a whole noir, hard-boiled P.I. feel with this story, isn't it? Yeah. So a title like that, a noir-inspired title, would have worked better. I didn't get Night of the Blood Stalker. I didn't... I didn't it's nonsensical. It's not exactly the 90s, so it's not like you can use that as an excuse. No, it's... it's the, Why does that blood in his title? It was the 90s! <laughs> yeah, that would have worked. Yeah. But here, no, not so much. Fred Waters... So he's not Waters, is he? He's Walters. Fred Walters, on page three, bears a startling resemblance to Carl Weathers. Apollo Creed? 
Look at him. Yeah, without the afro, yeah. That is so totally Apollo. Apollo Creed had an afro in Rocky. Did he? Not a huge one. Well... You know, but he had a, a moderate afro. He had an afro that wouldn't have broke his neck when he was turning his head, <laughs> whereas most people's afros were. Yeah. You know, if you were sat behind him at the cinema, you'd get a pair of scissors out, wouldn't you? They wouldn't notice. Cut the whole house. Yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't notice, wouldn't they? No. Until they <laughs> Until get they home. Got home. Yeah. <laughs> Until there's a hole in there. There's a bird nest in my afro. <laughs> yeah, well, they wouldn't notice that anyway. Uh, this story did, I looked this up, it did predate Rocky. Obviously, because we looked up the cover date, but um, he was a Carl Weathers was a footballer before he was an actor, so it's entirely possible he modelled him on Carl Weathers, or it could be a staggering coincidence. Maybe they had him pushing pencils. Ah, CIA got you pushing pencils. <laughs> oh, and then we get that lovely shot of the pair of them shaking hands. <laughs> yeah. Just so we can see, wow, look how big Arnie's <laughs> biceps are. Wow, I am so horny for Arnie at this moment. Are, are you really? Get to the chopper! Oh, Predator, how we love <laughs> Hannibal explains to Adrian about vampires. Includes a reference to Deacon Frost, a white-haired vampire with red eyes. Frost not only sired Hannibal King, ultimately, but also killed Blade the Vampire Hunter's mum. Okay. It's a small world, after all. Emphasising this, Wolfman ties this series in with events in the black and white magazine Vampire Tales, which also gets a mention on the next page. Mm-hmm. So it's all the fundamental interconnectedness of all things. I thought yes. it was quite impressive. Or all vampire things. Or all vampire things, yeah. Did did the Dracula stuff exist in the Marvel Universe? Well, it must have done, because Blade and yeah. Spider-Man met Dracula as well, didn't he? Giant-sized Spider-Man. Mm. Yeah, so I've just answered my own question. One clue to Hannibal's true nature... Is the entire story takes place at night? Yeah, I was just thinking that actually. Um, you, you could just easily forget all that if you think, oh, it's just a noir crime story. Hmm. Another clue, and a, a better one. When Hannibal enters the bar on page seven, he's not seen in the mirror above the bar. Oh yeah, I, that was what I noticed when I was reading it. Yeah, but I kind of like, I kind of knew Hannibal King. I, I'm not overtly versed in him but I kind of knew at the back of my head he was a vampire but I had slipped my mind but looking at that there and I thought he's not reflected and then I just thought oh it's an art goof mm. and it was one of them you know when you get to the end you go oh yeah Hannibal King's a vampire isn't he <laughs> <laughs> how did I forget that so when I was riding you earlier on about did you not know Hannibal King yeah. that was only spoofing him taking his cue from Bram Stoker's novel Dracula isn't actually in this that much mm. he's not in it much at all in fact in the novel He's in about 80 pages of over 500, which I asked your mum about because she's read the book, and I've not. I've still not, even though I've got it. Yeah, well, your mum says it's good. Your mum really likes Bronson. what I've read, it's pretty good. But even though he's not in it much, he motivates every character in the story, and it's the same with this. Hmm. He dominates this entire story, despite only being in, what, four or five pages? I preferred it when he wasn't in it, because the bits he was in were pretty late. Yeah, the depiction of Dracula is very 70s. Yeah. But there's nothing wrong with that. It's a 70s comic. I mean, nowadays he'd be a hipster doofus, wouldn't he? Would he? Yeah. Dracula. Totally. Oh, I'd, if it's a modern day telling, I'd put um, Christopher Walken or Richard E. Grant as Dracula. Richard E. Grant would be a good one. I think Christopher Walken brings too much baggage with him now. <laughs> Possibly a slightly bigger clue that Hannibal King is a vampire. He gets tossed out of a second story window and then he comes back and we have no explanation as to how he survived. Yeah. So that's a little bit of a clue. You, you that there's something into a going bat. on. Yeah, well, 
that's exactly what happened to Dracula early on in the story. He jumped out of a window and flew away. Yeah. And the same thing happens to Hannibal here. Do they fly away or does he turn into a bat? They turn in, he turns into a bat, doesn't he? Don't they turn into mist and then coalesce as a bat or something, if I'm remembering my mythology I'd correctly? I remember in the film where he just turned into a bat. It was so funny, it's just a puppet just hovering. They never turn into bats in Buffy. Yeah, they just turn into ballet dancers whenever they fight. Didn't Dracula was in Buffy? He turned into a bat, didn't he? Yeah, he did, because they did the episode where they go into the yeah. castle, yeah. Yeah, so he did, but none of the others could. In fact, Spike takes the mick out of it all, doesn't he? Does it? Yeah, doesn't he say people have read a couple of books and now they think they know everything about us? <laughs> Something like that. It's a good episode, that we one. just Cassidy taking the mick out of the Norlene's hipsters. Yeah, pretty much the same thing. Spike and Cassidy were the same character, weren't they? Yeah. Uh, Dracula attempts to use his cloudy Jedi mind trick to get Hannibal to do what he wants, and it doesn't work. Another hint? Yes, but apparently, and I've only read this first essential, I never carried on with this, I wish I had now, um, this is Wolfman setting up a subplot that Dracula is losing the ability to cloud men's minds. Right. I noticed. Still so, works on women, though? No. Right. No man <laughs> can control a woman's mind. So he doesn't have all of his, no. his, his burly dressed women just lying on Oh, the yeah, bed. he may have them, but he, no, no, no. Who <laughs> he, he hires out to meatloaf every time he wants to make a video. <laughs> I would do anything for love, but I won't appear in a meatloaf video. <laughs> but I won't do that. And I would do it. No, forget it. Oh, please, meatloaf, put me in your video. When's your done me all day? Speaking of turning into a vampire bat, or turning into mist anyway, there's a shot on the penultimate page where Colon has Dracula turning to mist that is absolutely fantastic. Mm. I love that panel. In fact, it's, it's yeah, very black and white as well. Yes, this is absolutely fantastic. We've got this in the first essential, and it's one of those where I have honestly never felt the need to upgrade to the omnibus because I don't think Gene Colan's artwork looks anywhere near as good in colour. Certainly on this series, yeah. Tomb of Dracula just works better in black and white. The art in this is... I mean, it helps that this is one of the better essentials for reproduction as well, doesn't it? Hmm. I mean, the issues that aren't inked by Gene Colon aren't quite as good. Gene Colon by Tom Palmer aren't quite as good, so I don't know how much he brought to it. Like, the first appearance of Blade is inked by Jack Abel. I can see why they updated his look. Yeah. Oh, I wish we'd covered him now. <laughs> oh, I so wish we'd covered issue 10. His name is Blade. Because he is just so 70s, isn't he? Yeah. The goggles and the hair and the, the big mask. Was it oh, purple? Yeah. I can't remember, I've never read it in colour. Fair enough. I've only ever read these in black and white. Um, the final, the ending, the last page, there is absolutely no reason at the end for Hannibal to turn to the reader and burr his fangs mm. to show that he's a vampire, other than it's pretty cool that he does it. Yeah. But there's no narrative reason for him to do it. Uh, this was an astonishingly good read. I was pleasantly surprised by this. I've not read this for it. I read this first essential. I've got the, f- the first three volumes. I've not picked up volume four. I need to get that. I remember trying to read it. A few yeah, you years couldn't back. get into it, could yeah. you? I loved this first volume. For some reason, I just never went back and and carried on. It's something I need to pick up. Despite being part of the overarching storyline, this worked incredibly well as a standalone. Hannibal King is a typical hard-boiled PI 
and Marv Wolfman does a great job with the narration and he lays the clues as to Hannibal's true nature very well. The art in this essentially is gorgeous in black and white and setting the story in London gives it a nice Hammer horror vibe. All credit to Wolfman, the British speech patterns aren't bad and he doesn't portray London as a constantly foggy place, a cliche that was old in the 1960s. Dracula is a supporting character in this issue, but Wolfman said, as I mentioned, that this was his way into the story and it works very well. I think I would have liked more stories about Hannibal King, Vampire P.I. It's got a very Kolchak vibe. Mm. And you can never have too much Darren McGavin, I don't think. What did you think of that one? I I liked it. I prefer the detective bits to the... um Dracula bits though well I think that was one of the reasons I picked that one I was just I just did a standard Google best issues of Tomb of Dracula search yeah which is my lazy way of normally picking a series that I've kind of read but I'm not that familiar with and it listed them and I just narrowed out the ones that were story arcs but it's kind of like the reason I like Kolchak as well because it's another one of your detective TV shows, which could happen to be any number of TV shows that was showed in the seventies. Yes, but it does have that kind of horror element to it, which I quite like. That little edge it has. The Kolchak pilot movies. I mean, they weren't pilot movies because they weren't pilots for a series at the time. But the Kolchak movies are great. The series is is not as good. Yeah, but Darren McGavin's good value. I love Kolchak. I think Kolchak's brilliant. The less said about the. Uh, misguided revival the better um influential I think it's hard to judge how influential this was because although it holds it up it was influenced by something that was yeah, more influential it's, yeah. it's, it's Dracula I mean despite the contemporary setting there's no real dated clothing or dialogue mm. and Colon's art is moody and, and likewise timeless it's based upon at this point an old concept anyway all he's done is plot Dracula down in contemporary times so I suppose you could argue Dracula's a little bit dated you know only someone who's been in the ground for 50 years could think that was the fashion sense but still you know the horror book's popularity had waned in the 60s and Tomb of Dracula no doubt contributed to its revival in the 70s but neither DC or Marvel had much success with outright horror titles until Swamp Thing in the late 80s, which in turn led to Vertigo. Tomb with the exception to the rule, and it's possible it was simply ahead of its time. So I don't know about that one. It's good and it holds up. I don't know if it was particularly influential on comics, other than keeping Dracula in the public eye. Maybe it was the challenge in the comics code that made it influential. Yeah, possibly. I mean, a lot of people have fond memories of Tomb of Dracula, and it is still held up as, as being one of Marvel's better 70s books. That was certainly a good issue. Yeah. Certainly enjoyed it immensely. Originally appearing in House of Secrets issue 92, the Swamp Thing that ultimately appeared in his own series bore no relation save the name to that character. Created by Len Wein for a while, the character had no name. However, Wein would refer to the project as that Swamp Thing I'm working on. The name stuck. Despite its origins being rather derivative, Mad Magazine mocked the concept of a muck monster regenerating itself to enact vengeance as far back as 1953. Something about Swamp Thing struck a chord, albeit not initially. Despite the exquisite art by Wrightson, his bailing on the book in issue 10 prompted Ween to leave a few months later, and the original Swamp Thing series only lasted 24 issues. 
However, the character has been the subject of two major motion pictures, one of which, the 1982 Wes Craven directed flick, is a fun, albeit routine thriller featuring Adrian Barbeau, and the other, 1989's Return of the Swamp Thing, features Heather Locklear and was stupid and campy. These movies brought Swamp Thing to a mainstream audience, but no more so than a 1989 TV series, which, despite running seemingly forever on cable, was almost inexcusably boring. The real Swamp Thing winner was actor Dick Duroc, who played the character through both movies and all 72 episodes of the show. It wasn't the first time Duroc had played a green monster, having essayed the role of Fry's creature on a two-part episode of The Incredible Hulk. Swamp Thing number one was cover dated November 1972 and featured a cover by Bernie Wrightson. Other than first startling issue, it has no cover copy save the logo, which is really quite striking, and the artist's signature. A man holds a pretty blonde woman by the neck and points a gun as a large green creature looking suspiciously like a tree trunk emerges from the waters. There's a lot of foliage and trees, so we, the reader, can assume that this is a swamp and that that is the titular swamp thing. It's a very effective piece of art, slightly spoiled as a cover by being in the 70s box that cuts it off from the logo, price, DC bullet, etc. Did you like the cover? I did, but as with the rest of the issue, I thought it would have been better in black and white. We didn't have this one in black and white. I know. Sorry about that. something about the colour that takes something away from the art. You think Bernie Wrightson's one of those horror artists that works better in black and white? Yeah. Right. Okay, I'm not disagreeing with you. I don't, I've never. I don't know if there's a showcase version Isn't of this. Isn't he doing that current Frankenstein comic that looks is in black and white and looks great? Yes, he is for an independent publisher. Yeah, he is. Yeah. The saga of the Swamp Thing Dark Genesis, a new DC Comics concept, was written by Len Wein with art by Bernie Wrights and, and edited by Joe Orlando. Doctors Alec and Linda Holland arrive at a refurbished barn at an undisclosed swamp-based location, but presumably somewhere in Louisiana. Escorted here by Police Lieutenant Cable, they are a top-secret scientist husband and wife team conducting a bio-restorative research invaluable to the government. Cable drops them off and informs them a patrol car will be in the area as the Hollands enter the converted barn to find a complete and well-stocked laboratory. The experiments go well as they attempt to create gardens out of deserts, but are interrupted by a man named Ferret. No good ever came of a man named Ferret. Ferret offers an exorbitant amount of money for the Holland's formula. Holland says no, but before things can turn ugly, Ferret and his men leave as Cable arrives to check up on the Hollands. Holland informs him of Ferret's visit and Cable says that the formula is a valuable commodity. Countries will kill to own it. A few days later, the Hollands pick up a stray dog and adopt it. Unbeknownst to them, the dog has a tracker in its fur that enables the mysterious Mr. E, this story's shadowy figure, to hear everything they discuss. He sends Ferret again, telling him to be more convincing this time. If the Hollands won't sell the formula, they must be destroyed along with it. Ferret does as he's told, knocks Alec out and plants a bomb in the barn. Alec comes to and tries to disarm the bomb, but having learnt nothing from Bucky Barnes, he fails and it explodes in his face, destroying the formula and covering Holland in countless unclassified chemicals. His flesh burns as he flees into the swamp. 
Holland is believed to be dead. And days later, after the funeral, Linda magically reappears and returns to start work anew. As she studies into the rain-filled night, a bizarre muck-encrusted figure emerges from the churning bog of eternal stench. A twisted mockery of a man, this creature wends its way to the barn as it pulls together its thoughts. It was Alec Holland, it reasons, and the bio-restorative must have mingled with his body chemistry and that of the swamp to create a new and unique life form. A swamp thing. Holland catches a reflection of himself in the window of the barn and refuses to let Linda see him like this. He hides outside and sees Lieutenant Cable run out into the rain after the dog. Swamp Thing finds the dog trapped in the swamp and frees it, but hears a gunshot. Moving as fast as his caricatured form of a body will let him, Swamp Thing arrives at the barn to find Linda shot dead. Driven by rage, the creature follows the sounds of the car and destroys it, killing the men inside. A shot rings out as Lieutenant Cable arrives, thinking the creature responsible for the murder of Linda. Swamp Thing disappears into the swamp, wanted for a murder he didn't commit, apart from the ones he did. And Alec Holland must let the world think that he is dead, until he can find a way back from this living death. Elsewhere, in the setup for future stories, a cloaked figure surrounded by demons watches on TV because CCTV is everywhere nowadays, stating that Swamp Thing is the one that he wants. Ooh, 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 honey. One that I want, you are the one I want, ooh, 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 the one I need, oh yes indeed. No? Very, very <laughs> did you like my falsetto? Yeah. I had to clutch my balls while I did it. Uh, an exceptionally moody opening, thanks to strong evocative art from Bernie Wrightson. Do I think Kelly Jones owns an awful lot of Bernie Wrightson? Yeah, who was it who did the early issues of Sandman as well? It's Kelly Jones. No. No? Dr- Sam Keith, Mike Dringenberg? Yeah. There's a lot of that going on yeah. this as well. Yes, you're absolutely right. Yeah, the early Sandman's. I instantly thought of Kelly Jones, but you're not wrong mm. about the Sandman influence, or the influence on this, on Sandman, yeah. Uh, there's an awful lot of shadows and blacks. Uh, the establishing page showing the reader the gnarled tree branch and the many and varied life forms living in the swamp is offset by the arrival of man and the incongruous barn in the middle of this wilderness. Possibly Ween is setting up that man is not meant to meddle with nature with this opening, which is a nice moment of foreshadowing, if it's true. Mm. Or it could just be dumb luck. Who knows? You don't know how much thought they put into that kind of thing, do you? Again, as I've done many times before, I simplified the story for the synopsis because I'm all about making my life easier. Mainly because... In this instance, there's really no reason for this story to have an immediate res beginning, as it's... Did you know it was a little bit confusing? Bear with me. Right. Is that opening page showing Ferret and his men arriving to kill Linda, or is it showing the Hollands arriving? Because he's already Swamp Thing here. This is an immediate res beginning. Yeah. Right? Okay. So, in that case, then, is it showing Cable and Linda returning after the funeral? Could be. If it's showing Alec and Linda arriving, which it seems to be, as the car is the same colour, make and model as theirs, then that means that the opening page is a flashback, the second page is now, and then we go into a flashback again. Which seemed very, very confusing to me. Maybe they do that thing where movies do, where they've got the two time frames together. So as he's thinking back, we're seeing what he's thinking. Yeah, but that didn't work either, because if it's Linda and Cable arriving after the funeral, 
in setting that in the now, yeah. then that doesn't fit with the timeline of the story. I think, right, the only reason this begins in media res is the writer wanted to show Swamp Thing right at the top of the story. Mm. Which is laudable, but I think keeping him off page would have made for a better reveal. Yeah. You know, playing around with the structure of your story is all very well and good, but it has to serve the story to do that. This serves no purpose by beginning with him being Swamp Thing and then flashing back. It's not like we see him kill somebody at the beginning and then the story reveals who he's killed and why he's killed him. That would have been a good opening. If it had opened with him ripping those guys out of the car and tearing them to bits, and so we opened the story thinking Swamp Thing is a bad guy, yeah. and then the story tells us, no, these people killed his wife, then you're seeing the same events at the beginning of the story in a different light by the end of it. That's a good reason to have that fractured structure. There's no reason for this to begin with him already being Swamp Thing. Mm. Is it? <laughs> Have you got nothing? No. No? Okay, fair enough. Did that not bother you? It, it, it didn't, actually. <laughs> All right, just me, then. Uh, the second story sets itself up well for the first few pages. Government work, top secret people willing to kill for this bio-restorative, blah, blah, blah. blah. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Thanks, Porkins. But page seven was a bit of a head-scratcher. One, having told Cable that men with guns just came by... Shouldn't Cable now assign a full detail to watch the Hollands, rather than, you know, just dropping in in between his coffee breaks? Yeah. Secondly, the art on this page is weird. It's good, but it's weird. Writes and draws this. Take the dialogue off that page, right? Looking purely at the art, writes and draws this as if it's a friendly chat. They're smiling at each other and, and having a good time. No, they're, not. they're all moody and covered in shadow. They're all covered in shadow, but the uh, he's grinning and uh, I uh. no, I got that he was conniving and up to something. Oh right, okay. I see. I didn't get that originally. I got that, the, especially when he goes on saying, "Oh yeah, you're doing a great job for all of us, but people want you dead." Yeah, that's what I meant. It, the, the the dialogue is confrontational. Cable is tacitly saying to them, yeah, like you said, there are commodities yeah. and there are other countries that would want you and even for your own government, you're just a commodity. Mm. But the I thought the art looked like it was nice and genial, but you didn't get that. No, I got that it was being very patronising to them. All right, okay. Eye of the beholder and all that stuff. Willing to go with that. All right, fair enough. I didn't like the cut to an exterior shot in the middle of a scene, though. The whole point of an exterior shot is to show the reader where we are, right? Yeah. But we know we're in the barn, because we see him enter the barn yeah. at the top of the page. So in the middle of this, this conversation, either genial or not, depending on your point of view, in the middle of this conversation we get an exterior shot of the barn. I mean, originally, I thought it was there because Wrightson was showing us someone watching the barn. But there isn't. It's just well, it's just there. There's an establishing shot in the middle of a scene. On the next panel, they leave it. So it's like in films in that we see outside. So you see them MP. opening the yeah. door as he walks out. Well, so you don't actually see that. All right, okay. Kind of interrupted the flow a little bit for me because I was looking at that panel going, "Is somebody watching them? Yeah. Is there somebody out there?" But no. All right, fair enough. I'll go with your interpretation. It does make more sense. The dog showing up at the door is incredibly convenient. But there's a lovely little husband and wife beat on the next page. Alec maintains, we are not keeping this dog. We are not keeping the dog. We're not keeping the dog. And all the time, Linda just looks at him. Anyone who's married knows that look. It's the look that says you can say what you want. But we're doing it my way. 
We know that look well, don't we? It's, isn't it usually a frown in reality? Uh, it depends. Sometimes it can be a sardonic smile, sometimes it can be a frown. Either way, the, the end result is the same. I'm getting my own way. I don't care what you say. <laughs> That's how it normally goes. Who Mr. E is is never explained. Could it be the Mr. E? No, he's a, another character, isn't he? Yeah. He's, um, is he a, a Carter Charlton character? He's one of the trench coat brigade, isn't he? Oh, right, so is he one of the Charlton characters they bought? He's a vertical character. So he's character now a DC later, character so, yeah. now? Yeah, all right, fair enough. Where's Linda gone? Um, out for a stroll. You think on page 11, Linda's just disappeared when Ferret and his men arrive, knock Alec out and plant the bomb, she's nowhere to be seen. Maybe she's out back. Or, yeah. she's walking the dog. Yes. That's a better explanation, isn't yes. it? Yes. It's, it's a convenient way of not having a Lady Swamp thing, but, yeah. is my opinion. <laughs> That's what I think. Swamp thing get. But, oh, yeah. <laughs> she swamp thing. Swampina. Yeah, swampina thing. I like that. Yeah, all right, she's walking the dog. Okay, yeah, okay, yeah. I'll go with that. It's fair enough. She's walking the flea-ridden yes, dog. Yes, dog that they just happen to find in the middle of a swamp. Yeah. Dogs love swamps, <laughs> apparently. Uh, as Alec is burning alive... A quite intense visual from Wrighton. The captions say, as countless unclassified chemicals seep deep into throbbing, fume-enveloped flesh. Which is quite gory. But shouldn't a good scientist know exactly what chemicals he's using and label them accordingly? And have them on a shelf. Yeah, but then you can say, what my thing with Barry Allen was, he'd always, he'd got those chemicals in my head from something somewhere and he'd not got chance to label them all yet. He hadn't okay. analysed them yet, so he didn't know quite what the configuration was that made him the Flash. In this case, it's Alec Holland's experiment, making a bio-restorative of his own invention. Why is he working with unclassified chemicals that he doesn't know what they are? How could he then replicate that experiment if he doesn't know what he used? Maybe he's just got a bunch of chemicals... And he said, well, does this one work? No. Does this one work? Yeah, but that's my point. He doesn't know what it is. So if it does work... How does he know how to replicate it? Um, he puts it on the replicate pile. <laughs> so he's just keeping them separate. He doesn't actually know yeah. what they are yet. He just knows, right, that one works, that one doesn't. That one works, that one doesn't. He doesn't need to know what they are as long as they work. He doesn't need to know what it is for him to become Swamp Thing. And yeah. We don't need to know either. Yes. All right. Stupid. <laughs> Why, then, is Alec buried in Louisiana? Are the Hollands locals? I don't know. Does he have no other family? There's only his missus here and Cable. Why is Cable at his funeral? Is his fault he's dead? Um, who else is going to be though? Just his missus. Yeah. And the dog. <laughs> the dog's there. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, the two page transformation scene and full page splash of Swamp Thing are very nicely handled. Does he come out of the frog? Does he come no, out of the, the frog? frog no, the frog's away, just but... leaping past him. Yeah. At the time, he doesn't actually morph from the frog. At least I didn't think he did. I thought the frog was just, what's going on here? I think I want to be somewhere else. Thank you very much. Uh, Carrying on with this theory that Lieutenant Cable is the worst cop ever, he doesn't even post a guard when he knows that Linda Holland is in danger and then leaves her alone to go and chase the dog and even fails at that. Swamp Thing has to rescue the dog and then Cable blames Holland... For, well, Holland, Swamp Thing, sorry, for Linda's death. Although, to be fair, that bit isn't really clear. Swamp Thing describes the car in a lovely full-page splash yeah. of him shattering it. It's really cool. 
that Ferret and Co. are travelling in, and he, he presumably kills them. It's not quite as obvious as what will happen in the next story that we're going to cover, but I I presumed he killed them. Yes. Did you? Yes. Right, okay. So, is this the murder Cable is accusing Swamp Thing of, or Linda's? Uh, One would imagine if Cable was a good cop, he would be blaming Ferret for the death of Linda. Yeah. There's motive there. Yeah. So, unless he's... So, he's presumably blaming Swamp Thing for killing these people who he did see them kill. Unless it was, you killed her because you didn't stop her. Them. Possibly. I don't know. I didn't. I was a bit vague on that, to be honest with you. What mm. is he? Who does he think killed Linda? Linda's just gone now. Linda's just a MacGuffin. Yeah, she's not important anymore. It's this treatment of women. We've told we need her off the way, so they've killed her off for no reason whatsoever. Also, calling your lead bad guy Ferret a <laughs> yeah. weasel. That's, that's kind of hanging a lantern on it. I think <laughs> just a little bit. And the shadowy bad guy at the end is apparently Anton Arcane, and the demons are the Unmen. Not being someone who's ever read Alan Moore's run on Swamp Thing, I did not know who they were. You have read Alan Moore's Swamp Thing? No, I'm not. Right, okay. Not but considering a few weeks ago we covered a story that heavily featured Anton Arcane and the Unmen. So we did! <laughs> they didn't look like that, though. Did they? No. They looked more falling apart. Yeah, alright, well there you go, there's my... Because it doesn't say here that's Anton Arcane and the Unmen. No, it doesn't even say who it is. In fact, it doesn't even say it's an ending. It just ends. Yeah, it just stops. Yeah. It just ceases Which confused me, because I read it digitally and thought, you know... It... What's the rest of yeah. it? All right, fair enough. It was, this was all right. Wasn't it? it was a satisfying, if by the numbers, origin tale, enlivened considerably by Wrightson's moody artwork. There are a, a few problems plot-wise, as we've detailed. The tale does hang together, despite the logic holes, and it's a fairly entertaining read, although killing Linda seems arbitrary and unnecessary. The origin, various unknown chemicals splash all over somebody, is reminiscent of The Flash. But other than that, this is very much a Marvel character rather than a DC one of this era. His transformation is an accident, he's another scientist meddling with nature, and nature takes her payback, and he's a reluctant creature, presumably just wishing to be left alone rather than being particularly heroic again. Similar to other characters this time, Reed Richards and Bruce Banner. It's not bad, by any means. I wasn't bored reading it, and some of the logic holes can be painted over with, with the minimum of effort. But one can see why this wasn't deemed a sacred cow when Alan Moore slaughtered it and rewrote Swamp Thing's backstory in subsequent issues. It holds up as a typical of-this-era comic, and is influential in that a later writer would do something with it. But I think I'd argue Swamp Thing is only remembered today because of that later writer's work rather than the original creation. What did you think? Yeah, I agree with you, but I just really enjoyed that. Did you? Yeah. That's what I think wasn't bad. I didn't not enjoy reading it. It was perfectly serviceable. Yeah. But I, I didn't think there was anything particularly original or unique or interesting about it that he's gone on to become who he's become. That, that does, as much as I dislike Alan Moore, that his work on Swamp Thing was defining for the character. Yeah, his work on Swamp Thing was influential. Yeah. More than the original concept of the character was influential. Yeah. So, yeah, alright, fair enough. 
Marvel's version of the Swamp Thing, the amusingly titled Man Thing. Giant size. Not this time. First saw printing Savage Tales number one in May 1971, predating Swamp Thing by two whole months from his initial appearance in House of Secrets. Ween had worked on Man Thing prior to Swamp Thing, but his story saw print after Swamp Thing appeared. Writer Jerry Conway, who was Ween's roommate at the time, and editor Roy Thomas both felt the origin of Swamp Thing was startlingly similar to Man Thing, and Thomas claimed in an interview that Marvel considered legal action. Whether due to the derivative nature of both concepts, as mentioned earlier, it was already a cliched horror trope at this point, whether it was due to both characters owing a debt to The Heap, who debuted in 1942, whether Marvel just couldn't be asked, whatever the reason, legal action was never pursued. Savage Tales issue 1 was one of Marvel's black and white magazines and part of their attempt to appeal to a wider and older audience, and Savage Tales has a M for Mature rating on the cover. Doesn't really need it. The cover, dated February 1971, highlights its contents with a painted cover by John Buscema of Conan, the magazine's main draw, hoisting a severed head by the her in one hand whilst clutching his bloodied sword in the other. A scantily clad lady clings to Conan's mighty muscled and well-oiled thigh, and further dead bodies are strewn over the landscape. It's a great cover, more akin to the pulp covers of the Conan novels of the time, presumably the audience that Marvel was no doubt courting. For those interested, the Conan story in this issue, The Frost Giant's Daughter, has already been covered by Michael and I in our Conan episode a couple of months ago. What do you think of that cover? I like that cover. Painted genius. Yes. Very good, isn't it? Mm. You look at that and think it's a shame John Buscema didn't get to do more painted stuff like that. Because mm. it is absolutely fantastic. He, he ripped it off when they did the Deadpool Mark from the Mouth series. Isn't that all Deadpool is, though? Yeah. Isn't Deadpool just a series of pastiches at this point? Not particularly funny in its own right. Yeah, do you remember when Deadpool used to be a... Yeah, that's what I mean. When it was funny in its own right, that was okay. Now it's just a pastiche of other yeah. stuff. The Joe Kelly stuff, the early stuff, was great. Ed McGuinness drew that, didn't he? Yeah. The Ed McGuinness stuff. Yeah, don't disagree with you. Man-Thing was written by Roy Thomas and Jerry Conway with absolutely gorgeous art by Gray Morrow. A shambling mockery of a man wanders the swamplands interfering with the eternal struggle between predator and prey and somewhere in the deepest recesses of his mind wondering which he was. The foggy memory recalls a name, Ted Salis, and an invention, a vial of some strange formula. Another name comes from the fog of his brain, Ellen Brandt. There was a cabin in the Everglades and a meeting with a government agent named Hamilton. Hamilton never arrived, so Ellen and Ted go somewhere else, where is never quite explained, where they find Hamilton's dead body. Ellen has duped Ted. Her tastes are expensive and this vial of MacGuffin formula is her ticket to Easy Street. Ellen takes the vial, the formula itself existing only in Ted's brain, and sets some goons upon Ted who manages to escape and flee. In his memory, the creature remembers Ted taking the car and driving into the dangerous swamplands, injecting himself with the formula so it doesn't fall into the wrong hands. This reckless act causes Ted to crash the car into the swamp, where the formula interacts with the unstable solution, twisting and changing Ted's body and mind into a grotesque man-thing. He rises from the swamp, his mind clouded by vengeance. 
Locating the car, he turns it over, burning one of the goons with his touch and snapping the others back like a twig. Turning to Ellen, who appears to be having a clothing malfunction and that they've all fallen off, he recalls that she dealt him the harshest cut of all, and he reaches for her, placing his hand upon her face and burning her flesh. Man-Thing stops short of killing her and leaves. If the man inside remembers that he is now an indestructible killer, it shows no sign, as he shambles off into the swamps. This story opens exactly in the same manner as the Swamp Thing story. Yeah. Exactly the same establishing shots of the Swamp's landscape and animal life, the same in-media-res beginning that then steps back in time to the origin story. The only real difference is that it's a much more dramatic opening. Grey Morrow having the man-thing fight a crocodile on page one. As an aside, and just to remove the redundancy of us going on about it on every page, Grey Morrow's grayscale art is simply gorgeous in this story. I'm not overly familiar with Morrow, but there seems to be something about being published without colour that brings out the best in artists of this era. Mm, the art in this was great. It was awesome, wasn't it? Yeah. His use of grayscale and his use of tones and his use of lighting. It's absolutely fantastic stuff. Really, really good. Some comics are just better in black and white. Yeah. Well, this was designed to be in black and white as well. Yeah. So this isn't like a Tomb of Dracula situation where Colon just looked better in black and white because his Daredevil stuff does as well. Mm. This was actually written and drawn to be a black and white magazine. So if this were John Byrne, he would complain if it was in colour. Yes. As he did with Starlight. Yeah. I think he complains that the sky is blue sometimes, though, doesn't he? Doesn't John Byrne complain just because he can talk? Yes, I think so, most <laughs> of the time. Another reason the cover didn't really need the mature label, Ted's girlfriend, Ellen Brandt, wanders around for the first page of Flashback, wearing as close to nothing as was probably allowed. She does all the way through. She's the reason this had a, a, mature, a mature label. Yeah. You think? Uh, to entice our hero to bed, she strides across panel whirring, and I use the term whirring very loosely, a see-through negligee that leaves absolutely nothing to the imagination. It's almost full frontal nudity in a Marvel comic. Thomas has said that the Marvel magazine sold well, but that the publisher of the time, Marty Goodman, wasn't behind them. Shame, really. Like Ellen, the art is gorgeous, if a little muddled on this page. It starts outside the cabin in the swamp, with Ellen appearing, appearing sorry, silhouetted at the doorway, and she entices Ted into the lab and then into the bedroom. Instantaneously, Ted is naked, save his shorts, and the two are in bed together. There's no transitory shot. Ted's clothes just fall off. Yeah. Don't they? <laughs> I didn't... I thought, I thought it was... It was have we missed something there? Um, but we've not, because the page ends with the implication that what they were going to do has happened in between pages. Yeah. So we've not missed anything. Because originally, if you just look at the art, it looks like she's enticed him into bed there, and then he's got on the bed, because he's, he's not wearing anything, he's putting his slippers on. Maybe he's that enticed that... <laughs> Blink and you miss it. Is that what you're calling it? Yeah. Alright, fair enough. Ted Salis is a typical Marvel scientist. He's invented something that has killed people, and he feels an all-consuming remorse and guilt over it, which is fine. But the next thing he does is create something that will also, he says, kill a lot of people. Mm. He seems to be a bit of a glutton for punishment to me. Yes. Doing it more than once. First time's a mistake. <laughs> Second time is deliberate, so stop feeling guilty and just get on with it. 
There is also a ton of expository dialogue explaining why this meeting is taking place in the middle of the Everglades, which didn't actually make a whole hell of a lot of sense. Do low-paying civil servant scientists get to dictate to government officials where the meetings take place? Or do they get told where they're going? I'm pretty sure they get told. I'm pretty sure about that as well. Yeah. But, alright, fair enough. Anyway, Hamilton never arrives at the meeting, so Ted and Ellen go somewhere else and find his dead body. Where do they go? Somewhere else. <laughs> is, that, is that the caption? <laughs> do they go home? Do they go to Hamilton's home? This didn't make any sense either. Why not meet Hamilton at this location instead of the cabin in the swamp? Yeah. Why not just meet him here in the first place? I didn't get it. I didn't... I couldn't make that work for me, no prize boy. Um, I can't. <laughs> um, Ellen turns out to be a femme fatale selling Ted out for the formula. A formula that nobody knows about and nobody understands and nobody even knows what it does, including, it actually says this in the narrative, Ted. Yeah. After injecting himself... It's implied that it's kind of like a super soldier formula, the the kind of thing that created Captain America. But did you know the formula is just a MacGuffin? It exists only to create this main character, so the stories can start, and it's very woolly and irrelevant. It's basically we need a reason for him to become a swampy type man thingy, doesn't it? And that's it, a swampy type man <laughs> thing. <laughs> Would have been a better name. Is, is that after you don't? Is that when you don't shave? <laughs> yeah. It becomes a swampy type man thing. Yes, yes. That's that's yeah. If you don't, which person you talking about, Shem? The man thing. Ah, right, let's move away. <laughs> Ted is also dumber than dirt. He burns the formula, claiming that it can be replicated because it's in his head. But he can't actually bring himself to destroy the vial with the distilled sample. So he injects himself with it. Yeah. Did that make any sense? Panic. You panic. Is that your nail prize explanation? Yes. You've created a formula that you don't understand, and so you inject yourself with it. Firstly, any scientist that creates something that they themselves don't understand seems not to be a terribly good scientist <laughs> to me. I'm not talking about discovering something by accident. Yeah. Ted mentions numerous times during the story that he's not aware of the implications or effects of the formula. But it, this keeps being contradicted in the caption. Secondly, if you don't understand what something does, don't inject it. Hurl it into the swamp. Or better yet, just inject it into the seat of the car. Yeah. And then Problem you, solved. The car turns into a... And then he crashes the car into the swamp and the car becomes the, the car thing. Swamp Christine. Yeah. But at least Ted Salis would still be okay. I guess, but it'd be a really trippy comic. <laughs> I'm not saying that the car would become sentient upon the formula being injected into its leather car seat. The spirit of the swamp lives on in the car <laughs> as it takes vengeance upon the builders who have turned the Louisiana swamp into a car park. <laughs> Actually, that's a better story than this one, I think. Ted refers to Ellen as a Judas goat, which I thought was quite cool. The Judas goat being the goat that leads the others to slaughter. Yeah. And he himself is. Yeah, you've done all that at school, haven't you? Exactly the same as the Swamp Thing story, Man-Thing reaches the car featuring Ellen and the goons, smashes it, pulls them out, and kills them. And no, no ambiguity in the Man-Thing story. Mm. He picks the guy out of the car and snaps his back over his knee. Yeah. So Man-Thing is very definitely a murderer, whereas Swamp Thing, it was left 
ambiguous also in this scene and no doubt aided by the mature rating Ellen's top rips off for no reason at all other than to expose her breasts yes why does that fall off why does it rip um she's a woman (laughs) it was just straining too much because of the puppies because of the fun monkeys and it just popped off. Yes. Is that what you're saying? Those fun bundles Unless were just too much for any top to handle. Unless something is a secret superpower that no one <laughs> likes talking about. It. it makes women's tops fall off. Yeah. Alright, fair If he concentrates hard enough, he like expands her breasts so that they fall off. Pop! Yeah. Right, okay. But no one likes talking about it, um, not even he does. No, he never mentions it again as well, no. I would imagine. Uh, he also grabs hold of the other fella after snapping one guy's back and burns him with his touch because whosoever knows fear burns at the touch of the man thing which is not used in this story no whether they explain it but he says he doesn't know why that 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 catchphrase though isn't used in this particular story which I thought was quite interesting he saves the harshest treatment for Ellen he places the palm of his hand over her face burning her terribly mm. and it's heavily implied he scarred her horribly for life yeah did you think that was a bit harsh probably but she did like betray him and he was very 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 annoyed and he is dead now let's yeah alright for him as, so as long as, as, long as we're talking about who's disfigured for the longest <laughs> period of time I think he's got it worse <laughs> Do you know, I did not look at it from that <laughs> angle. Alright, okay, fair enough. I get what they were going for here. Yet another cautionary tale about science gone awry. But unlike Bruce Banner or Reed Richards, Ted Salis comes across as, um, what's a polite way of saying, a bit of a loser. Um, a bit of a loser. Yeah. Yeah. Both Reed and Bruce were, in their own way, pushing the boundaries of science and trying to progress mankind. Reed in shooting for the stars, and Bruce in developing weapons. Both paid a price for their hubris, but both men were ultimately noble. Ted whines about his lot a great deal. He doesn't even seem terribly happy that he's punching well above his weight with Ellen, who is magnificently sexy. Granted, she turns out to be a femme fatale, but hey, at least Ted got some. At least Ted Ted got to sample the fun bags. (laughs) I might have been turned into the Swamp Thing. Doesn't matter how it's sex. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the mature aspect of the strip, like you pointed out, is all provided by Ellen, whose sole purpose is to walk around looking sexy, be evil whilst being sexy, walk around some more whilst looking sexy, have all her clothes fall off in a sexy manner, fall to the floor looking sexy, and then be burned horribly by Man-Thing, which isn't very sexy, but she managed to make it seem like it was. Something tells me you thought she was quite sexy. She was, well, that was the purpose, that was her purpose in the story, and she did it well. Yeah. I mean, complaining about that seems a bit churlish. The point of her was to walk around and then wearing no clothes, betraying the hero. All fourteen-year-olds yeah. reading this. Yeah, <laughs> of all the people who shouldn't have been reading it. Yeah, but the people who should have been reading it were buying Playboy, so it's, it's, it doesn't yeah. really work for them, I would imagine. I mean, granted, she did kill Hamilton, or was at the very least complicit in his murder, but burning her face off—you still think that's okay? Like I said, all oh, right, fair enough. The plot bears very little scrutiny and the writers can't seem to decide if Ted Salis even knows what his formula does or how it works sometimes he knows what it'll do and others not in between pages they vacillated on that incredibly didn't they yeah I wonder if that was a problem of being two writers I don't know it was very annoying though Uh, I know it's a MacGuffin 
but it should at least be consistent in its MacGuffinness. The art is, however, simply magnificent. Graham Morrow does shading and light and dark absolutely magnificently, and it looks like it's been painted. It's that good. What did you think? I actually really like this. It was very, very similar to Swamp Thing, but I, I preferred it to <laughs> Swamp Thing. Um, and probably the art helped a lot, but yeah. also how it was that much darker than Swamp Thing. Yeah, I'm going to agree with you. For all the problems that I picked on it for, mm. and I did, didn't I? This, the Swamp Thing one felt like a standard run-of-the-mill origin tale. Yeah. Man-Thing felt moody and noirish, and the black-and-white artwork helped it, and mm. the fact that Ellen was a, a femme fatale was really well done. I mean, it was. It, I'm not going to say it was incredibly obvious from the get-go, Yeah. but it gave her a part in the proceedings instead of just being a passive observer who's then killed off at the end like Linda was. Yeah. So, yeah, in terms of mood and tone and art, Man-Thing scored over Swamp-Thing. I also think it benefited from being shorter. Yeah. So it was just a much faster pace. Yeah, it was just a much faster paced story, despite essentially being exactly the same story. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm going to agree with you. So of your three tonight, which did we, we prefer? Man-Thing. You think? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm more down with Tomb of Dracula as a story. But yeah. art-wise, definitely Man-Thing. Graham Morris' art was absolutely gorgeous. I need to have a look what else he's done. Mm. I don't think I've ever heard of him before. I think he did an issue of Star Trek. DC Star Trek in the 80s. As with all these things we've asked, does it hold up and was it influential? It read perfect. Being set in a swamp, it's not dated, although Ellen's clothes, when she bothers wearing any, are very much of the time. Other than the see-through negligee, which she may as well have not been wearing for all that it covered, later on she adopts a top that fastened around the neck like a shirt collar and fashions under the breasts and has two pieces of cloth that run over her chest, leaving a huge cleavage window because, being the 70s, no bra was required. Added to this, she's wearing a mini skirt the same colour, we can presume as her top, because it's black and white, and it's an ensemble. It's a lovely little ensemble. It can't be very well made, as it falls off her, for no reason. The best. She didn't have a belt. Do you know what it was? Yeah. So the top fell off because she didn't have a belt. She didn't have a top belt. <laughs> it was fastened around her neck. Not very well. Apparently not. <laughs> no. It was a loose button. Yes, yes. The bad guys look like your standard thugs who used to beat David Banner up every week. As for its influence, well, like Swan Thing, it took a later writer, Steve Gerber, to do something with the concept, but I've never read any of that either, so I can't attest to its quality. It does seem like the imitation, Swamp Thing, gained more traction and popularity than the original, although Man Thing did also get a low-budget flick. Huh? Never seen it. I don't suppose you have, have you? No. I think it's been on the Horror Channel or Sci-Fi, and at one point I thought, should I watch that? <laughs> nah. And then Common Sense prevailed. <laughs> should I watch that? No, something else is on. <laughs> Anything, Anything else, else is on. <laughs> Maybe not Dance Mums. Maybe I would have left Man Thing on. Or Dance Mums on mute. <laughs> no. No, not even on mute. Or the power off button on the remote. Yes, and listen to music. Yeah. Or, or read. Or you could go and read Man Thing. Yes, I could read Man Thing instead of watching a bad adaptation of Man Thing. And so concludes our look at 70s comics. It's a series of shows that grew in the planning. 
Oh, did it. And we changed our minds about what stories to cover and why on an almost weekly basis before settling down to the choices. Sometimes it became as simple as, right, we're recording, we're doing this. Yeah. We have no choice now. For the most part, we steered away from superheroes, without exceptions. From the most part. For the part. most part, as the 70s were rich in diversity. And let's be honest, we've covered seminal Superman and Batman stories from the 70s in earlier shows, and we're planning on covering the original Spider-Man clone saga in a few so weeks. So, the entire show we dedicated to Spider-Man. The one show out of seven. Okay, the, six. The, the issue about Luke Cage. Luke Cage, is he a superhero? Uh, he was a hero for hire. Superheroes traditionally out for hire. Green Lantern. Yeah, yeah well, that was an important epoch-making comic, the introduction of Jon Stewart. Oh, so what else did we do? We Technically, we covered Spider-Man with the introduction of the Punisher. That's but again... Spider-Man twice. It's Spider-Man, dude. Twice. So? Yeah, his entire show. What point are you trying to make? And, um, you know, we tried to see clear with superheroes. <laughs> Oh dear. The idea was to look at the rich tapestry of the times and the comics they influenced. The rich tapestry of Spider-Man <laughs> comics at the time. Well, yes. I mean, the idea was to specifically examine issues that captured trends and interests of the times. It doesn't matter the if it to be in Spider-Man comics. The Punisher, the Gwen Stacy epoch-making comics. So it was the introduction of Jon Stewart. Right, okay. So, you know... Ultimately, Michael's disagreeing with me, but the ultimate... If arbiter- I couldn't remember the other comics we did, I should have been more of an argument. <laughs> the ultimate arbiter of whether we succeeded is the lovely listener. They would, would have to decide whether we succeeded or not. We're too close to it. Entire episodes could have been dedicated to Marvel's concentration on socially relevant storytelling. <laughs> Entire episodes could have been concentrated on one Marvel superhero. <laughs> the Sam Bullet storyline Spider-Man was what I was just going to mention. I don't care what you say, one of the best anti-bigotry stories ever written. And Jerry Conway exploring the disintegration of the Richards marriage in Fantastic Four, a misstep... But an interesting one. Denny and Neil Adams' DC work could carry a show on their own. And there was a ton of new formats and concepts that were, and are, worthy of discussion. So what have we learned? Other than I like Spider-Man. <laughs> Did we learn that, though? <laughs> Did we already know that? <laughs> well, yeah. Well, that the 70s were a time of great social change and experimentation in comics, something I don't feel the era gets credit for. I've even seen comics professionals refer to the 70s, particularly in regards to Marvel, as an era of coasting on past glories, an opinion I really don't agree with. Even in the mainstream superhero books, DC and Marvel were trying out new ideas and new stories, instead of retelling the same old supervillain X escapes again and superhero Y stops him type of tale. There were cosmic stories, socially relevant stories and down-to-earth grit. There were different genres and a wide variety of titles, from science fiction to sword and sorcery to kung fu to crime drama. The newsstand sales showed an increase in popularity of comics like Conan and Star Wars, although the black and white magazines weren't really a success, largely because they didn't have Marty Goodman's full support. There were treasury editions and digest pocketbooks, paperback reprints, newspaper strips, and with books such as Superman from the 30s to the 70s and Origins of Marvel Comics, the beginnings of the trade paperback market. These new formats exposed the characters to new audiences and brought in new fans and are still recalled fondly today. Despite the rise of digital in recent years, presumably opening the doors to more new and different comics, I don't think DC or Marvel are anywhere near offering the level of diversity in their titles as they did in the 70s, and it's left to Image and other independent publishers to carry that baton. 
The 70s were definitely a transitory period from the experimentation of the 60s to the more realistic takes on certain characters in the 80s, but the Bronze Age of comics is very much deserving of your time and effort. Some of the prose is purple, some of the stories are very much of their time, but in terms of creativity, diversity and freedom, we may never have had it so good. What did you learn? There was good in there and there was a bit of bad in there. So no different from now then? No. Sometimes they succeed and sometimes they don't. Seems to be a lot more open to experimenting then though. Yeah. Maybe the market was just the... I don't think you would get away with doing a essay issue about the beliefs of the writer nowadays. No, probably not. Maybe looked at... You wouldn't get anything that... Self-indulgent. Yeah, maybe Marvel might get away with it, but particularly DC, it's summer blockbuster. All the time. If you can't turn your comic into a film, then DC won't publish it. You think? Yeah. Right, okay. Well, see, a lot of Marvel's concepts are geared towards that, but it yeah. doesn't... Do you think it just doesn't feel as obvious? And you're yeah, DC boy. If Marvel are doing that because they're both trying to make films now and yeah. they're both changing the where comics. the money is well, yeah they're both changing the comics to adapt to the films I think Marvel are hiding it better than DC are DC that Didio might just turn it into movie comics right. you know he's being very blatant what he's trying to do alright okay and, and Marvel does have stuff like She-Hulk the new She-Hulk book's great yeah and, and Black Widow's alright and I've not tried Ghost Rider yet but I, I think meaning to. Marvel is still giving the creative teams the freedom to write a comic that is aware that it is a comic. Mm. Whereas I don't think DC are very open to experimentation because they want it all to have a movie-like feel. Even if it's only the animated movies. Because they've already done the Jim Lee, Jeff Johns opening Justice League arc, haven't they, as a movie? So I presume more... I mean, I wouldn't mind seeing A Night of Owls. Yeah, Um, especially in Capullo's style. Yeah, they've done Son of Batman... Yeah, that's that's old, really. Is it? It's still Grant Morrison's it's, Batman stuff, isn't it? 2006, six, seven. Is that old now? It was... <laughs> with DC, yes. <laughs> yes, when no one's allowed to be over 29. But, yeah. And everyone's thin and pretty. Yeah. All right, fair enough. We hope you enjoyed it. Next time on an all-new episode, we become a Batman podcast Once again. again. Because Michael wants to do Hush. We're thinking that's going to be a two-parter one parter no really yeah I've already done the first six issues and it's well over yeah 11 pages it's not a three like we thought no it's two yeah it's definitely two it's not a three parter by any stretch of the imagination no (laughs) so we'll see you next week for Batman Hush which I suppose could be our proper 75th birthday of Batman yes couldn't it think of it that way that's what we'll do we'll see you next week thank you for joining us bye bye goodbye
Enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. 